You're listening to Huddle Up with Josh Kelsky. Welcome to Huddle Up. I'm Josh Kelsky, and today I'm talking with Craig Mish, host for Fantasy Radio and host of his own podcast, Swings and Mishes. I hope you guys enjoyed the interview. So, Craig, how are you today? I'm well, Josh. How are you? Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on. Craig, your radio show has become quite a hit. Your audience says that you can analyze baseball and football in a way that no one else can. How are you able to talk fantasy every single day with different topics and different takes? Well, there's a lot of preparation for that and a lot of understanding both the game of football and baseball. And through the years, I've not only been an analyst of football and baseball, but also a huge fan. And so in my younger days when I went to school, I was an okay student, but I always would remember statistics and players, and it just seemed to be a natural fit for me. So fortunately, Mm -hmm. I was able to make this into a little bit of a career. And uh, as you could say, the rest has been history. I've been doing fantasy shows on the radio for more than 10 years and doing it both on TV and radio for about 15, 20 years. So as fantasy has gotten bigger, I've been very fortunate to be doing what I do. On your latest podcast, you talked about the Marlins series against San Diego, where they won two out of three. We saw some controversial strike calls, uh, as you mentioned on your podcast, and a lot of conversation has taken place about having umpires listen to a robot called balls and strikes up in the booth. Don Mattingly believes that this should happen. Do you believe that changing the home plate umpire will take the human aspect and human error out of the game, or do you believe that it'll help the game of baseball? I think that there will always be some form of a human umpire on the field, but I think that they certainly can be helped by a digital strike zone where they can have a better understanding as to when they make mistakes. And I don't think that that's any different from when right now managers are allowed to challenge calls on the field. And so if there's a way that an umpire is on the field and he gets a call wrong, uh, there could be a very quick fix of that by someone basically upstairs or in New York or however they do it, telling the umpires, hey, uh, you know, you got that one wrong. And I think eventually it'll be more refined and it'll get figured out. So I do see some form of that happening, but I don't think that they would eliminate the umpires altogether because there there does need to be some sort of order on the field. And so how they decide to do it, I'm not sure, but there's no doubt that with the technology that we have that can determine outs very quickly, we certainly can determine balls and strikes pretty quickly too. You also mentioned on your podcast that the Marlins should have a relatively quiet trade deadline. But you said one player for certain will be traded, and that's Sergio Romo. Why would a team want a closer that's ERA is above 3.5 on their pitching staff, especially when they're really close to the postseason? Well, right now, I don't know that teams really want anybody on the Marlins, but I think that by the time the 31st comes, what you're going to see is the higher priority players on some of the other teams be snatched up by the playoff teams like the Dodgers and the Yankees and the Astros and some of those other teams as well. 
And naturally what happens at that time is then other teams start to look for other options. And maybe in the best case scenario for Miami, what would happen is some teams sort of panic. And then at that point, they work their way down to a player like Sergio Romo or maybe even Neil Walker. Uh, But yeah, I think that what Romo does is he doesn't throw very hard, but against especially right-handed pitching, the right-handed hitting, he'll give some of these teams a different look where you have a guy throwing 95 miles an hour and then you bring Romo in for a batter or two and he's throwing in the mid-80s and throwing his slider. So he certainly can be effective. I don't think the Marlins are going to get really anything significant back in return for any of their players. Mm-hmm. Romo seems to be the one player to me that's almost a guarantee to be traded. And as the off season is kind of getting close, which is very strange to say, as it doesn't feel like we've had baseball that long. But are the Marlins going to spend money this off season? And if they do, who are they going to go after? Well, a lot of people in the organization have told me that they were going to spend money, and so we'll just have to see what that number ends up being. They have two players that are going to be free agents at the end of the season that they won't retain. One is Martin Prado, who makes about $18 million. The other is Starlin Castro, who the Marlins, if he's not traded, will just exercise their $1 million buyout. And um, and that's another 11 or $12 million off the books. So that leaves them with basically a gap of about $30 million that they can spend. Now, Josh, I don't know that they're going to spend all $30 million in one season that's available to them. Uh, but I certainly would think that 75% of that money will be spent on free agents. And it's really hard to determine at this point who they may go after. Uh, they also could trade for a player who's under contract with somebody else. So, uh, you know, there, there isn't a ton of free agent options out there, but I know this, one of the free agents that they're going to sign in the offseason, without a doubt, is going to be a left-handed hitter. So yeah. whether that comes at first base or the outfield or at shortstop, there's going to be some sort of left-handed batter in the Marlins lineup next year that's going to be making a decent amount of money. And we're not talking about like Curtis Granderson or Neil Walker for one year and a couple million. I think it's going to be more significant than that. And going back to the LA series, whenever a team can erase a six-run deficit against a World Series caliber team. That's very impressive, and I'm sure a lot of people around baseball can attest to that. But the bullpen should have been able to hang on and not blow the game. Why can't the Marlins bullpen shut down a team, especially in big moments like we saw during Game 2 of that Dodgers series? Well, because their bullpen isn't very good, and they don't really have a lot of uh, talented players in their bullpen at the moment. And when you're a team that's going through uh, a build or a rebuild, the last the last piece of the puzzle is always going to be the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning. And I think that on most baseball teams, what you can see, especially with the trade deadline coming, even the really good teams don't have necessarily great players. And therefore, they're going to be getting them from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. For example, uh, Will Smith on San Francisco, and now the Giants are playing much better, but they were talking about him being traded. Shane Green, who's been one of the best American League relievers on, on a team that doesn't really need a closer, they're talking about him being traded. So when Miami is good again, Josh, and when they're winning games, it makes more sense to have those talented, high-leverage pitchers in the 7th, 8th, and ninth inning. 
but right now I understand how they're just kind of piecing it together. And I think next year they'll probably add one you know decent pitcher to that. But there's no reason to spend money and get really uh, great bullpen guys mm-hmm. when you're only winning 60-some-odd games. So I really don't have a huge problem with the way that they've handled it. And now let's take a look at Jordan Yamamoto. He's 4-1 and one in seven games, and his ERA is under three. It was under two, but in his last game against the Dodgers, gave up a lot of runs, so it's under three. I believe that the, he is the Marlins' future in the starting rotation. He doesn't give up a lot of runs, and he's consistently hitting his spots. Now, during his first seven appearances, Jordan is one of the lowest ERAs on the team. Do you believe that he is the future of the Marlins pitching staff? You know, Josh, I'm not really sure on that one. Um, you know, I, I think that he, you know, he was very, very good at the beginning. And what happens is as time goes on in, in baseball in general, teams start to identify what pitchers do well and what they don't do well. And they've stopped really swinging out of the strike zone against him. And he's been a lot less effective and he's walked batters. The other problem with him is that in general, when batters hit him, they hit him very hard. So he's going to now have to start making some adjustments in order to stick at the big league level. I certainly think he could be a starter, but honestly, I don't think that he's anywhere near what we've seen in the first few games. you got to give him a lot of credit, especially for shutting down the St. Louis Cardinals back-to-back. But the Cardinals have been the worst offense in baseball since basically May. Mm-hmm. So uh, we'll just have to see how things progress. I think he can be a major league starter. I think he could be a, a four or a five, as they would say, in terms of starting pitchers. But I, I don't think that you'll see anywhere near the success that he had in his first month over the rest of his career. I just don't think so. So you spent a lot of time in the minors lately. What are the Marlins doing right in their farm system, and who do we need to look out for during the next few years? Well, it's hard to say what the uh, draft from 2018 is going to be because we just really haven't seen almost any success from any of the players that they took in that draft. All of a sudden, over the last few weeks, their first-round pick, Connor Scott, seems to be making some strides. He's playing in Clinton right now, which is their low-A team. And if all goes well, perhaps he would get a promotion to single-A next year. So that would be a name to watch because he was just simply a very high draft pick. But so far, that 2018 draft doesn't look fantastic. The 2019 draft, it looks like a completely different draft. He already has J.J. Boudet, their first-round pick, who's playing in high A, and he already hit his first home run, so that certainly is a good sign. They'll have Cameron Meisner following him, either at Jupiter or also at Clinton. So those are two very big left-handed bats that even could be in the lineup maybe late 2021. I think that there's a chance for that. And ironically, as much hitting as the Marlins need, from the minors, they just don't have any. It's this pitching that they have, and they still have a ton of young pitchers like Sixto Sanchez and Edward Cabrera, and uh, and those guys are at the Double A level, and Braxton Garrett and Rod and Trevor Rogers, their uh, first round pick. They are pitching in the High A level and doing very well. So the question is, are they going to have to move some of these young pitchers to get some hitters in return? It may have to happen eventually if the Marlins can't find a way to get it free agency in the offseason of this year or next year. So, Josh, a lot of nice young pitchers in the minors maybe as talented as they've ever had in the history of the organization. Mm -hmm. But strangely enough, they don't have the hitters to match that. 
And someone that I haven't heard a lot about recently is Lewis Brinson. How's he doing in the minor leagues? Lewis Brinson uh, had a pretty good start when he went to Triple A, and then it cooled off a little bit. So he's really going to need to prove himself again at the big league level. I'm not sure what the Marlins envision for him, honestly, at this point. Uh, you know, he'll probably get another opportunity in September to come up and play, and I would assume that he'll get an opportunity again in spring training to earn his way back onto the roster. But I don't, I don't know that the Marlins, Josh, see him as, uh, as the future or the highly touted uh, prospect that came over in that trade anymore. I think they're just hopeful that he could be a capable big league player. And what, what's the time frame of the Marlins getting to 500 and above? Well, next year, I mean, assuming that they win somewhere between 60 and 65 games this year, which is what they're on pace to do, uh, it would be hard-pressed to ask the Marlins to be a 500 team next year. That would mean that they're almost uh, 15 to 20 games better, and it's very rare to see that. But I would say that, that there's going to be some pressure on them to win somewhere between 70 and 75 games, and that would be an increase of 10 from the year before, and then hopefully the year after that, 2021, would be a year that they could compete for the postseason. And I think that's kind of where they stand right now. And, uh, you know, certainly there should be a lot of optimism, and there's no question that there's going to be pressure to win next year a lot more than they have the last two years. But there's also, uh, you know, there's there's some question as to whether any Major League Baseball team can go from a, let's say, 65 or 66-win season to an 80-win season. That's a lot. Plus 14 doesn't usually happen unless you make significant changes. So hopefully five to ten games better next year and then a, a, a very competitive year, maybe playoff year in 2021. Well, you heard it, everyone. We're looking at about two years until we have a playoff caliber Miami Marlins team. Thank you so much, Craig Mish, for being on the episode. I can't wait to listen to your show today and your podcast coming up in the next few days. Josh, as always, thanks for having me. You're doing a great job.